You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode nine. Today, we're asking the question, is there safety in numbers? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, what's today's question? David, the question for today's episode is, is there safety in numbers? Now, usually when I hear that phrase, it's some sort of bad pun about metrics. But in this case, it's really a sort of old idea, or maybe even urban legend, that being part of a crowd is always safer than being alone. So it works something like this. All else being equal, you'd expect that the number of people who get hurt during an activity goes up linearly with the amount of risk exposure. So if 10 people ride a roller coaster and two of them get sick, then if we have 100 people riding the roller coaster, we'd expect 20 to get sick. And if a thousand people ride the roller coaster, we'd expect 200 to get sick. But the safety in numbers idea is that all else is not always equal because the amount of exposure can also change the amount of risk. One person walking alone might have a high risk of being mugged, but 10 people walking together don't have 10 times the risk. They have a much lower risk. And then at the other extreme, it might be safe for one person to be on a narrow bridge, but dangerous for a thousand people to crowd onto the same bridge. Not exactly a thousand times more dangerous, but in fact, almost infinitely more dangerous. So the idea of safety in numbers is that there's this nonlinear relationship. Today, we're going to look at a paper that tests one aspect of the relationship between risk and risk exposure. And then we're going to have a bit of a broader conversation about how this type of thinking, thinking clearly about the relationship between exposure and risk, can help us to manage safety a little bit better. So David, before we get started, do you have any examples of your own where you can think of this nonlinear relationship between risk exposure and total risk? Yeah, Drew, I, I think there's lots of examples. And, and when you suggested this topic, I, yeah, I think I, I would have thought of that, yeah, well, definitely safety risk or total risk doesn't always move in a linear way with exposure. But I think lots of our processes in organisations are actually geared around assuming that's true. So for example, I think we see it a lot in the way that we aggregate risk in our enterprise risk frameworks uh, within our organisations. We sort of expand out our existing risk and we, we add on new activity and then we, we come up with our new level of risk. So, for example, if we owned one production facility and we bought a second production facility, would we have twice the risk of a particular incident at one of those facilities? I also thought about it in relation to to other activities. So I had a look at some of the driving or the motor vehicle data. And I think the Australian road statistics is something like one fatality for every 200 million kilometers. But not every one of those kilometers is driven with the same level of risk. So if you're an organization, you could have 100 million kilometers. And then if you added an extra activity, it may even be only an extra 100 kilometers of driving, but it could have a completely different risk profile than the rest of your activity. Yeah, that's a really good example. Because that sort of figure, like one fatality every 200 million kilometres, assumes that the moment you step out the door, that's the risk that you're exposed to. 
Whereas in fact, if this was someone driving for the first time, suddenly they're undertaking a huge amount of risk, not just their share of that one fatality per 200 million kilometres. Yeah, and I think we see that with a with a lot of activities in organisations that have that have safety risk. A lot of these activities are unique, and and we I think we intuitively know that, but I don't think our risk systems are, are maybe mature mature enough for us to help our organisations understand that. So, we do some work in the aviation in the general aviation space, Drew, with some organisations, and yeah, they they might be very experienced at at a particular type of aviation activity, and then they introduce this one new different type of activity. And when you were looking at their total risk, you could almost say they've order of magnitude increased their risk just by adding this one incremental risk exposure. So the other example that I was thinking of is a little bit closer to the one we're going to look at in depth today. And this is the idea of what sort of red lights are railway drivers most likely to run through? Because a lot of statistical analysis just sort of assumes that what matters is whether the light is red or green. Whereas when people have done a more deeper analysis, they find that there are some lights that drivers always stop at because they expect them to be red. But what really catches drivers out is if it's a signal that is almost always green and then is just sometimes red, or is almost always red and is sometimes green. When they're expecting one thing and they get hit with another thing is where most risk comes in. It's in the unusual rather than in the regular exposure to the risk. Yeah, and I think that's always been the the history of unprotected level crossings as well, Drew, with uh, with train and vehicle interactions with drivers just saying that they just didn't see the red signal because they drive through that crossing every single day and it's never red. So let's let's get into the paper that we've got for today. It's got a bit of a boring title. The title of the paper is Safety in Numbers, an Updated Meta-Analysis of Estimates. And as it sort of says on the tin, this is a 2019 paper that updates a 2017 paper, which had a very similar title. The first author of both papers is Rune Elvik. Rune is a transport safety economist. So they've got a long career of using statistical analysis to examine the impact of various safety policies, particularly road safety policies. Uh, the 2019 paper was published in a journal called Accident Analysis and Prevention, which is a very good journal. And the 2017 paper was published in Safety Science, which is also a reputable safety journal. Now, I, I guess I should point out here that you, normally I sort of give the author and the journal uh, first up because they're pretty good shorthands for just getting a general idea of the quality of a paper. When it comes to statistical papers, that's probably less the case. A lot of statistically dodgy stuff gets published in some very, very good journals and by some otherwise very good authors. So unfortunately, there are no real shorthands for trusting the results of statistical analysis. You need to get a bit down and dirty with the numbers. Now, that's not quite as bad as it sounds. You don't have to be a statistics expert. Um, in fact, often that's the problem is people get too hung up on the detail of statistical methods, and that distracts them from fairly obvious issues and problems. So the trick I use is to focus on four things. The first one is, what are the independent variables? Sometimes there's just one, sometimes there's two or three. They're the basic things that we're comparing. And then secondly, what's the dependent variable? That's the output of the study or the thing that we're comparing the independent variable to. And then thirdly, what's the apparent relationship between those two things? What are the authors or the statistical analysis saying is the relationship between the independent and dependent variables? And what does that relationship mean or not mean? How much can we usefully extend from the statistical analysis 
back out into the real world. So as a really simple example, we can ask, does smoking cause lung cancer? So the independent variable is whether or not you smoke. The dependent variable is whether or not you have lung cancer. And the apparent relationship is that people who've smoked a lot are more likely to have lung cancer than people who haven't smoked a lot. What does that mean back in the real world? Well, in that particular case, it meant that there was a lot of time and lots of research to get from the point of there's an apparent statistical relationship before there was a compelling argument that smoking actually caused lung cancer. These matters of statistics, uh, lies, damn lies, and statistics is um, and correlation and causation is something that we need to be very wary of in safety and, and social science more broadly. But we see these claims all the time in safety management where, where someone will say, improving your safety culture will cause a reduction in, in injury rates or other correlations like a certain type of leadership behavior will result, is related to an increase in safety climate scores. And very little of these uh, claims that are made so commonly in safety are actually based in, in evidence. And I just did it for a bit of fun. I just Googled um, spurious correlations and crazy correlations and listeners who are interested can, can run off and do that. And you'll find that there's you know, a 95% correlation between the crude oil exports of Norway with drivers killed in railway accidents. Or for those who follow pop culture, that there's a very strong correlation between people drowning in swimming pools or the number of people who drown in swimming pools and the number of films that Nicolas Cage appears in each year. So we can actually find lots of relationships between lots of things and sometimes fool ourselves into thinking that we understand um, what's going on without actually truly knowing what's going on. I guess I find that really frustrating because some people fall into that trap and other people use that trap as an excuse to just dismiss all statistical data. And I don't think either extreme is healthy. There are some things which it's really useful to use statistics to unpack and to test. And I think the topic we're looking at today is a good example of that. So don't just take this as a broad brush, hey, throw out statistics. Take it as a be careful about what the statistics do tell you and be careful about what they don't tell you. And I think the statistics is is one thing, Drew. I think those those questions that you asked earlier, so this, what's the apparent relationship and then what does this apparent relationship mean and not mean? And it's probably that step that gets made from the statistics to the conclusions that we draw, which is a step that, as opposed to the actual raw statistics themselves, which is the step that we really need to make sure that we understand. Okay, so let's let's look at the study. The study calls itself a meta-analysis. So I guess I should explain a little bit about what that is. There's sort of three standard types of literature review you see in journal articles. There's a very straightforward literature review, which just means that someone has gone out and collected lots of papers about the same topic, and they're providing a synthesis of those various papers. The second type is called a systematic review. And the key thing about a systematic review is that there are rules that have governed what papers are found and what papers are included and not included. And because of those rules, systematic reviews tend to be much more tightly focused around a particular question. For a meta-analysis, that's one step tighter again, where we have a very, very specific thing that we are testing. So we have often a claimed relationship between two variables or a particular statistical model. And we're looking for papers that have been published that directly speak to that very specific question. So the rules will say it must have this as the independent variable. It must have that as the dependent variable. It must have a must publish its effect size, it must publish the statistical methods it used. And often meta-analysis will not just summarise those studies, 
but we'll actually combine the mathematics. We'll combine the numbers of people included in each study so that it creates almost like a single bigger study that includes all of the data from those previous studies and reanalyzes them. So the advantage there is that you get, it's like the way with telescopes, you can have one really big telescope or you can have lots of little telescopes spotted around the globe, all of which feed together. You get this benefit of effectively having a globe-sized telescope looking at your data. But the disadvantage is that if any one of those studies has some sort of mistake or misreporting in, you risk it contaminating the whole set. You risk accidentally double counting or skewing your results by combining all of the errors from the previous studies, not just all the benefits from the previous studies. This, this paper definitely doesn't fall into that trap because it doesn't do that mathematical combination. It's more of a very, very precise summary of all of the previous analyses comparing and contrasting them rather than directly adding them together. So the precise question it's asking, the independent variables are the volume of motor vehicles, so how many cars drive around the place, the volume of pedestrians, and the volume of cyclists. And then the dependent variable is the number of accidents. So the relationship it's testing is to ask, in order to predict the number of accidents, can you just use the volume of pedestrians and cyclists? Or is there some other factor that is pushing the number of accidents down as the number of pedestrians and cyclists increase relative to the number of motor vehicles? And it's that mysterious effect pushing the number down that they've called the safety in numbers effect. So Drew, is it right, is it right to say here, if I am riding my bike um, on a road, and it's a, so it's a country road and there's very few bikes out there and I have a certain risk of an incident versus if I'm on a road with nine other cyclists, do each of it, does this group have a 10 times greater risk of one person being hit by a car on a road where there's frequently lots of cyclists versus myself out on my own on a country road? Yeah. So, so it's saying that if your risk of being hit is maybe one in a hundred rides, then we would expect the risk of 10 cyclists to be 10 times that. And if instead of being 10 times that, it's a little bit less, then we say there's some other factor we've got to include in our model, which is going to be the relationship between how many cyclists there are and how many cars there are. So it's a fairly precise question. Um, and the answer to this question is, I guess, unusually for the papers we've done so far, David, it's an unquestionable yes. Yes, even when we do the studies well, we find that there is a safety in numbers effect. And even more exciting, the bigger we make the study, the more we control for confounding factors, the more recent the study, the bigger the effect is. And that's exactly what we'd hope to see for a real effect. When something is pseudoscience, you tend to find that there are some studies that say that it works, but the bigger the study is, or the better controlled the study is, or the more recent the study is, the smaller the effect is, until the very best studies show that the effect doesn't work at all. Here we're seeing the exact opposite. So we'd say that, that um, the old cliche of there's safety in numbers, which we, we've titled this, is, is true. There's some, there's some evidence and fact behind that saying that there's safety in numbers. Yes, indeed. And so the first thing we need to ask is, okay, does this just happen through some sort of statistical accident? So both papers include a fair bit of statistical analysis that I'm not going to try to summarise here. And it does things like checks for publication bias. It checks to see whether there's some sort of statistical effect that might be skewing the result or that one or two big studies are making it seem like there's overall a good effect. 
And all of those tests come back clean. So they basically say, you know, there's no pattern here of bias. It's not that people who don't find for safety numbers don't publish and people who do find safety numbers do publish. This looks like it's a real effect that's being found by the studies. Now, the tricky thing then is to say, okay, so what does that mean? Um, why is there safety in numbers? And the authors are pretty honest about the fact that they don't know. Statistical analysis often can't give you that sort of causal explanation. So there's a few things that they put forward. So it could be really straightforward. It could be what I imagine myself when I'm looking at these results and that I imagine you as listeners are thinking of as well, which is that when you've got a lot of cyclists and pedestrians around, the drivers tend to expect cyclists and pedestrians, they tend to slow down, they tend to look out, they tend to be more careful. It could be something totally backwards. It could be that when you have a safer city with safer infrastructure, that leads to more pedestrians and cyclists. So it's not the pedestrians and cyclists being safe, it's there are pedestrians and cyclists because it is safe. Now, none of those is likely to be the full story. And one of the reasons we know it's not the full story is that these different studies that are summarised, sometimes they look at like a really specific location, like an intersection, or sometimes they look at like a ma one major cycling route, or sometimes they look at a whole city or a whole region. And the effect is weakest the more you focus on a single specific location, which is a little bit confusing and kind of contradicts both of the main theories. There's also the problem that you know, if this was like a single real effect, we ought to be able to give some rough idea of how big the effect is. And in fact, the effect changes a lot between the studies. It's more variable than we really would expect to see which probably means that there's no single explanation. There's, in fact, several different things going on. You, maybe it's true that drivers are more careful. Maybe it's also true that safer infrastructure leads to more pedestrians. Maybe it's also true that the pedestrians and cyclists behave differently when there are more of them about. Uh, maybe there's an explanation three, four, five, and all of them contribute to this overall phenomena. Yeah, so Drew, we've got now which is great. We've got a, a positive finding. So we're giving our listeners something that works for safety, which is safety numbers. So now, now if we move into practical takeaways, this is where we're going to generalize a little bit and maybe just uh, throw our thinking onto the table. This is not, these are not takeaways that have come out of the, out of the paper, but if for instance, the, uh, the safety in numbers effect is real, how might we think about that safety in numbers effect for how we approach safety management in our organization? So Drew, do you want to, do you want to kick us off? Okay, so, so the first one I think we genuinely can take out of this study, and that is the study shows clearly, at least for this particular example, a very nonlinear relationship between exposure to risk and number of accidents. And as you said, David, at the start of the podcast, a lot of our safety practices assume that there is a linear relationship. And one of the key ones that I'd like our listeners to be aware of is that whenever you use a concept of a rate, instead of a raw number, you are assuming a linear relationship. So when you talk about five accidents per 100 million kilometres driven, that's a rate. When you talk about number of injuries per number of hours worked, that's a rate. And those rates are explicitly assuming that there's a linear relationship. And this study gives you a very strong counterexample that unless you've got good evidence that the relationship is linear, it, you really shouldn't assume that. Um, so the practical takeaway there is just don't report rates, or at very least, if you're going to report rates, report the raw numbers as well, because the rates hide both the numerator and the denominator. It's not really sensible to divide them, but at the very least, say what the numerator is and say what the denominator is. 
You don't say your TRIFA is 0.584. Say there were three accidents based on 30,000 hours worked. Yeah, I think that's good insight because I think we all intuitively know that not all hours are created equal, not all exposure kilometres are created equal, but most of our most of our reporting centres are around rates and it would be easy to say that if we increase the the amount of exposure, then we will have a linear increase in in risk. And um, we know that that's probably not the case in, in well, I can't, I can't think now of a specific example where it probably would be the case in, in safety. The second one that, that I want to talk about is that there could actually be a danger in rarity. And so this is something that I think is really interesting to think about in safety management. So if, if, you're, more, if, there's, if you're more frequently performing a particular activity or you're more used to it or you know more and you're more experienced about it, then you, it might come with a lower level of risk than if you do something quite rarely. So if we use the safety numbers effect to say that if I do the activity once, I've got a certain amount of risk. If I do the activity 10 times, I don't have 10 times the amount of risk. I might learn how to do it really well and get really good at it. And I might actually have not much more risk than, than just doing it once. So, so I think this is really interesting how we think about where we focus our safety management efforts in our organization. Do we focus on the things that we do all the time? Do we focus on the things that we, we do quite rarely? Are tasks that we do rarely may be safer to be performed by a professional contractor who does that type of task all the time. Drew, do you think the safety numbers effect can apply to how we think about the frequency of our organisational tasks? I think this is a really useful concept to think about. And I think contractors are the perfect example to throw at this because we can imagine an organisation has a task that they want to subcontract for maybe just for business reasons. And we can see that there could be two very different safety things going on. One of them could be that we're delegating a task that is rare to us, that we don't have the right equipment for, that our people are not experienced in. And we're giving it to someone who does it every day, is properly equipped to do it, who understands the hazards and who does it really well. We could also, by subcontracting, be giving it to a labour hire firm filled with people who've never done this before, where new people are constantly encountering the hazard in unexpected ways. And we're, in fact, drastically increasing the risk. So two business decisions that we could both label as subcontracting the risk. One of them, we subcontract the risk and it gets much smaller. The other, we subcontract the risk and it gets much larger. Yeah, that's a, that's a good example, Drew. The third takeaway that, that we're thinking of is, is also where in our organisation do we have this lone cyclist or lone pedestrian type of activity? And, and straight away, I thought of things like, you know, quite simply for our, for our listeners, things like designated walkways. Uh, around your your facility and your and your plant, and I know that we put a lot of efforts into separating people and plant and and designated walkways. But if your people are following a route within your plant or facility that operators of plant and and vehicles are used to seeing people in, then the safety numbers effect would say that you are possibly going to have a lower risk than if your people are just walking randomly around the facility. Yeah, the, the example that sprang to mind for me was a couple of really tragic cases of people being inside cardboard compactors and getting crushed. And you know, afterwards, the comments were just, you know, no one expected someone to be there. And there's nothing like in, inherently dangerous in being inside a piece of equipment that has been turned off that needs someone inside it to maintain it. The problem is that if someone's not you know, even... Ex- thinking that that might be a possibility. It's a totally normal thing to do to plug the equipment back in and turn it on again. So people can see, I think, I suppose in this, and and I know we're sort of generalising quite broadly and meandering around different types of topics and now maybe into areas of isolation and lockout. 
but thinking about you know what what people expect to see in your organization what risks they expect to face and where they expect to face them and then what risks and things that they they don't expect to see and and we can't assume that people who see things 10 times you know have to, or experience something 10 times have 10 times more risk than people experiencing something once in fact like we said in here the safety in numbers goes the more people see things the more people experience things the less risky it would be now this this probably sounds very intuitive to people but we actually I mean, I think my reflection would be I've never really considered what it might mean for safety management and decision-making and our risk systems within our organisations. So that, that's really the main thing that we thought was interesting about this study that we'd like you as our listeners to take away. It's just that way of thinking that how we expose people to risk is not just a straightforward case of more exposure equals more risk. It is worth thinking about, you know, how do our systems encourage and manage familiarity with risk and is that something that we can actively manage in safety and to try to capitalize on that idea that the risk doesn't have to go up just because we've got more exposure the risk can go down or at least not go up as much if we're careful about who gets exposed how they get exposed and how that familiarity and competence with the risk works yes so for those who want to engage with us on our safety of work linkedin group is there anything that you'd be more interested you'd be interested in hearing more about or understanding more yeah sure i actually had a lot of questions coming out of this that i suspect some people who are out there listening already know the answer to so one of the simple ones is just i'm interested in how much people use exposure as one of their metrics or things that they care about when they think about risk in their organization you know i know that some people for example keep track of how much driving occurs so do you do that do you have like exposure to risk as a safety measure? Do you try to measure and reduce the amount of work at heights or work in confined space or driving or some other unsafe activity where you track the sort of volume of the activity as a proxy for how safe your organisation is? Yeah, I know, Drew. I mean, I've been involved in a, in a specific program that was, that was titled um, Reducing Windscreen Time. And the program specifically was about, um, had a target of reducing driving exposure by 40% in the hope that if the less number of journeys you were doing, the less incidents you would have based on your incident rate. So they set a target to reduce the overall exposure to driving within the organisation. And it was quite a big program about reduced windscreen time. Yeah, so, so I'm interested in what sort of things people are doing in that space. I'm also interested if people know if there's research that says whether this is a good or a bad idea. It seems sort of logical to me that it is a good idea, but I'd love to know if you've done any sort of direct measurement or know of any studies that talk about whether these sorts of programs are successful by other measures. You mean reducing exposure is a good thing to do? Yeah, I mean, I mean we start off with this idea that we've got a hazard by windscreen time, we aim to reduce the windscreen time. You did that in fact reduce the number of accidents, that, that sort of information. And how about, I suppose, interestingly, I just thought immediately when you talked about that, about we're practicing for drills. So the example that I'm trying to trying to think of is uh, if you are a firefighter, for example, you need to train and learn how to be a firefighter by starting fires and learning how to put them out. That is increasing your, your risk because you're essentially being exposed to fire when you don't actually need to be exposed to fire. But is that actually that exposure building competence so that if you're going to face that situation in the future, you are able to manage the risk associated with that situation? So I think that type of example you know, it becomes really interesting that our 
if we push our reduce our exposure down to a certain level, do we get to the point where we become less competent with being able to deal with that risk? Yes. Yeah, so, so I'm certainly interested in what our readers think about this. Also, I think we're probably going to have to come back to this in a future episode specifically about how we develop risk competence. And so if people have read interesting things, feel free to point us in that direction. Yeah, great. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 